Hi, I'm Jeff Ebert, and welcome to Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People. This is Season 1, Episode 22, and we are still in the Gospel of John, now in Chapter 8. And as we come to this story of a very imperfect person's encounter with Jesus, typically referred to as the woman caught in adultery, let me first just talk about kind of the background for this passage, because in most Bibles you'll note, or you'll find a note that the beginning of the story to the effect that most ancient copies of the Gospel of John do not have this passage in them. And it seems to have been something that was added to the text at a later time. See, there are a lot of places where the ancient Gospel texts don't agree with each other. And these are called transmission errors, because as handwritten copies of the Gospel were distributed around the ancient world, um, you know, errors crept in. You see God, through the Holy Spirit, He oversaw the writing that came from John and Matthew and Paul and the other New Testament writers. God superintended that process, not by some kind of, you know, divine dictation or a trance where the authors did some kind of autonomic writing, but working through their own thoughts and writing styles, God had them write what God wanted to be written. That's what we mean when we say the Bible is the inspired word of God. God inspired the original composition, but God did not control how the copies of the original were made. And there were many excellent, perfect copies made and copies where fallible humans made mistakes in the copying process. That's just history. And the same thing holds true for the rest of the New Testament. But 99% of those differences have to do with like the misspelling of a word or the inclusion or exclusion of an article like a the or an a. And none of them affect the understanding or meaning of the passage. In fact, I have a book that catalogs all 124,000 of these transmission errors. And that's good because the incredibly high volume of ancient manuscripts, more than 24,000 documents and partial uh, um, completions of the Old Testament or New Testament, uh, we have so much more information about the New Testament than any other ancient writing, far more. That volume of material gives Bible scholars and textual critics critics just tons of information to sift through to get back to what was the original text. It's sort of like a family tree. The sheer volume of material allows scholars to trace back through the documents and through the centuries and kind of create a graph like a genealogy tree. And scholars can see where and when the the errors crept in. And one error might produce a count of a thousand errors in that family tree as successive copiers, you know, included the error in their copies. So, but without a doubt, just from a textual point of view, the New Testament is the most reliable of any ancient text before the invention of the printing press. And so you can be 100% confident in the fact that what you are reading is what was originally written. And the sidebar notes in a good study Bible will point out any transmission error in the text that you should know about. That's what we see here in John chapter 8. The other big one to notice is the endings for the Gospel of Mark, because there are three different ones. But this story in John 8 could be original John material, because it has the feel of John's writings. There's an authenticity in the story. It's in line with everything else John shows us about Jesus, The reference to Moses in verse 5 is consistent with John's underlying theme of using Moses in his gospel. He does that 13 times. Some scholars think it may have been cut out 
because someone felt like Jesus was maybe somehow condoning adultery here and that later it was restored to its original position. I think it's kind of a 50-50 whether it was original or not. But my feeling is to include it in our study because it doesn't contradict any doctrine or anything else we see about Jesus, you know, in the rest of Scripture. And it beautifully shows us again the way Jesus treats with people. So this is going to be John chapter 8. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Around the year 450 AD, the ancient church got together and created a document that outlined the core beliefs that defined the Christian faith. It was called the Apostles' Creed. About midway through the creed, we come to this phrase, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Up until this point in the creed, it's all been pretty heady theology about God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this mystical thing called the church. But in this phrase, we see something that immediately applies to you and me. Forgiveness of sins. That's personal. That affects us. Without this phrase, the whole meaning of the Christian faith would be null and void. Just a hopeless, meaningless mess in a world gone wrong. But with this phrase, the forgiveness of sins, a whole big world opens up. It's as though we've reached the crest of a mountain. And now we can look out on the whole panorama of what God can do in a person's life through the forgiveness of sins. Do we really understand forgiveness? Do we really understand forgiveness from God's point of view? I'm not so sure we do. I'd be willing to venture that most people in our day don't truly understand forgiveness of sins. Let me give you an example. Those of you in the business world may have heard of a guy named Jack Welch. He was CEO of General Electric for 20 years from 1981 to 2001. He died a couple of years ago. But he was always heralded as this outstanding business guru who turned around that huge corporation. He wrote a best-selling book about leadership and was a fairly controversial figure because he authorized these massive layoffs and put a lot of people out of work and became a pretty wealthy guy himself in the process. He was also somewhat controversial in his personal life because he divorced a couple times, each time to marry a much younger woman. After his book came out, he and his newest wife were interviewed by Dan Rather on the CBS News show 60 Minutes. 
And right at the end of the interview, Rather asks him a great question. Here's the conversation. Dan Rather, what's the toughest question Welch has ever been asked? Jack Welch, do you think you'll go to heaven? Dan Rather, and your answer? Jack Welch, it's a long answer, but I said that if caring about people, if giving it at your all, if being a great friend counts, despite the fact that I've been divorced a couple of times, and no one's proud of that, I haven't done everything right all the time. I think I got a shot, but I'm in no hurry to get there and to find out anytime soon. And when I first saw this interview, I thought, wow, here's this incredibly talented guy, brilliant guy, successful guy by every definition of our culture, but he hasn't got a clue when it comes to the meaning of forgiveness. You see, his answer about getting into heaven was this, I think I'm good enough. If I try hard enough, if I do the best I can, I think I got a shot at it based on my good deeds. You see, Jack Welch, I think he typifies this very common belief in our culture that somehow forgiveness actually means God grades on a curve. Like it's exam time in school. Teacher adds up all the scores of the students in the class and then plots out a grid of the grades. And your grade is based on your performance relative to the other students in the class. Your grade is based on how you compare with others, not on some outside standard. That's the curve. So if God grades on a curve, then as long as I'm better than a lot of other people, I'll make it into heaven and they won't. I don't really need forgiveness. I just need to be at the top of the class. If I do my best, if I help some people, as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad, I'm in. I mean, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not an abuser. So I'm golden. Sure, I've got some flaws, but I'm not that bad. And I get extra credit if I try real hard and if I give some money away. I'll give it my best shot. God is going to be impressed with me. That's the Jack Welch approach to forgiveness. And what he's really saying is that he doesn't need forgiveness. He doesn't need forgiveness because he's not that bad. No wonder Jesus said, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul? That's Mark 8:36. If you think you can be good enough to get into heaven, then you don't have a clue about forgiveness of sins. If you think you can do enough good deeds to earn your way into God's good graces, then you've missed the boat completely. Why? Because according to Scripture, God doesn't grade on a curve. According to Scripture, it's pass-fail. And guess what? We all fail because the standard is not how we compare with others. The standard is God's own holiness. You see, the word forgiveness presupposes the reality of some kind of guilt an offense that has to be forgiven, a breach, a wrong, a guilt. And so what kind of guilt are we talking about? Well, guilt involves a relationship with God, that we were created to be in relationship with him. But the whole story of the Bible is that relationship has been broken in such a way that by our very nature, now we're guilty before him. Humanity as a whole, and each one of us individually, we've sought to be our own God. We have tried consciously and unconsciously to take God's rightful place. This is an offense to God. God's very nature is that he cannot simply ignore it. This brokenness in our connection with God, this rebellion, is the source of all our guilt before a holy God. That's the core problem, the issue that must be dealt with. A person may say, I don't feel guilty, but guess what? Your feelings don't count. This is not based on your feelings. It's based on God's facts. He is the standard and he is the judge. 
And you can deny it, you can regret it, you can despise it, but you can't alter it. It's the standard that is established by God himself. We see this throughout Scripture. But if you've ever read through the book of Romans, this is page after page. Let me just run through a few verses to help us understand sin and forgiveness and salvation. And these are kind of the bad news verses from Romans 3, chapters and 5 and chapter 6. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, and all our good deeds are like filthy rags. You see, we may impress each other with our attempts at goodness, but even our best efforts do not impress God. All have sinned, all fall short. This core guilt then spreads out into all our areas of life, personalities, our desires, our passions, our actions, priorities, you name it, it infects everything we do. The Jack Welches of the world confuse the disease with the symptoms. For example, if you have lung cancer, then a symptom might be a persistent hacking cough. If you go to the doctor and the doctor gets rid of the cough, that has not really helped you all that much. In fact, it places you in greater danger because now you're not aware of the deeper problem. You think you've got it solved. Lots of religions tell people how to be nicer, how to clean up your act, how to do good. The focus is on improving the symptoms, but they never look at the core disease. Symptoms will break out in all kinds of areas. How we search for love, how we deal with loneliness, our desires for power, success, self-worth, and freedom. The symptoms break out everywhere, but the core disease is our broken relationship with God and therefore our responsibility before him. Forgiveness is not about trying harder. That's just reforming yourself. That's not Christianity. That's being a moralist. And that's what gets some people confused when they discover that there are many non-Christians who are actually nicer people than the Christians they know. If Christianity is just about being nicer, then we have failed miserably because there are a lot of non-Christians out there who are a whole lot nicer than a lot of Christians I know. Forgiveness is not about just being more moral. Forgiveness is about God's transforming your very being. American writer Henry David Thoreau once said, For every hundred hacking away at the leaves of evil, there is one striking at the root. And I believe that's Jesus Christ. He strikes at the root of the problem, at our broken relationship with God. Because forgiveness is something God does on your behalf, whether you feel it or not. When God declares that you are forgiven, you are forgiven, period. Like a judge in a courtroom, you're the defendant, and God doesn't say not guilty. He says guilty, but pardoned. And there's a huge difference. Because God does not say, it's okay, don't worry about it. He says, you are guilty, but you are pardoned because of what Jesus did for each one of us on the cross. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We have the assurance of God's pardon. God doesn't pretend the guilt isn't there. The guilt has been satisfied because of Christ's death on the cross. He took our sin. If we go back to the book of Romans, each one of those verses that I read earlier is a bad news, good news verse. I read the bad news sections, but then there's the good news section that follows after. Listen to the good news, Romans 3, 24. We are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him 
as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Romans 5, 6. You see, just at the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 6, 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's why we can have confidence. Our forgiveness isn't based on what we do, but what on Christ did. We don't fully understand how it is that Christ's death satisfies God's justice and restores our relationship, but he takes our penalty and he gives us his righteousness, his right relationship with the Father. Christ's death wipes away our sin, and it's like he wraps his arms of righteousness and holiness around us. Our sins are totally wiped clean, like getting a brand new operating system, a brand new hard drive for your computer. You start fresh and new. Those are God's facts. Forgiveness is something Jesus Christ does for you, whether you feel it or not, when you come to him. Feelings come and go. So we should daily remind ourselves that there is absolutely nothing we can do to add to the atoning work of Christ, and there's absolutely nothing we can do to subtract from it. This is beautifully illustrated in today's story from John 8. This very familiar story of the woman who comes to Jesus and right away we see she's caught up in some kind of conspiracy to embarrass Jesus. Something's just not right in this story. If she was caught in the very act of adultery, where's the man? I mean, it takes two to tango, right? And the fact that the guy in this liaison does not appear shows us that this is a setup. The man was turned loose, even though the law of Moses says that both the man and the woman are to be killed. And the Mishnah, the oral interpretation of the law of Moses that was favored by the Pharisees, it goes on to say that the man is to be strangled, not hanged, not stoned, strangled. Wrap a scarf around his neck, one guy goes north, the other guy goes south, and that's it. But that didn't happen, and it points out the injustice given to women in ancient times. Women were treated badly, worse than second-class citizens, and these men were using this woman for their own purposes, and they're even willing to see her killed. So she is brought as a means of testing Jesus, to put him on the spot in front of the crowd. Now, it's hard for us to understand how radical Jesus' treatment of women was, but we see it here so clearly again. As the Pharisees and teachers of the law are standing there with their baseball-sized rocks in their hands, getting ready, ready to execute a little street justice, they are trying to see if they can trap Jesus. One, uh, on, the, on the one hand, if Jesus affirms the law, he will be seen as the one who sentences the woman to death. If he denies the law, he'll be seen as a heretic or worse. So they think they've got him. But what does Jesus do? He kneels down, starts drawing in the dirt. Jesus so beautifully sits down, begins writing in the dirt, and in doing so, he draws all attention to himself. Because this woman, you know, if she was caught in the very act of adultery, it's very possible she was not well clothed, maybe only wrapped in a sheet as she was dragged down the street and thrown in front of Jesus. And by kneeling to write in the dirt, all eyes go to Jesus. What was he writing? People were trying to see. There's a lot of speculation about what he was writing. Maybe the sins of the other people standing around in the circle. Because Jesus knew what was going on in their lives too. And one commentator suggests that Jesus just wrote one word, the word lust. And by doing so, he implicated every man there in the act of adultery. Because remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, teaching on the same topic, how 
he pointed out not, not just the external act of adultery, but the internal lust that precedes it. You're just as guilty. And so by writing lust in the dirt, he was saying to them, who has never had any lustful thoughts here? Which of you has never entered in at least vicariously into what some other man did with this woman? Or even as we've been standing here, haven't had some lustful thoughts about this woman. You guys go ahead and cast the first stone. We don't know what he wrote, but it was enough so that when he gives that beautiful phrase, those of you who are without sin, you be the first one to throw the stone. The text says that beginning with the oldest, they began to walk away. Maybe the oldest had lived long enough to understand their own sinfulness and understand that, you know, they were guilty before God too. And so they dropped their rocks and walked away. And maybe the young bucks, the hotheads, they were the ones who waited, looked around, saw the others leaving, and then they kind of lost their courage, threw down their rocks and walked away in a huff. And then Jesus is left just with a woman. And he says two beautiful things. First, woman Where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? Woman. He used that same endearing expression that he used when he spoke to his mother, Mary, at the the wedding in Cana of Galilee in chapter 2. Remember when we looked at that? That same endearing expression that he used when he spoke to Mary from the cross. When she was, and this woman was not expecting that level of respect and actually tenderness from Jesus, from a man that she'd never met before. And I can guess that she hadn't received much respect or much real tenderness from any man before Jesus. This respect and elevation of women was part of Jesus's radical reorienting of the sinful world, where women were now elevated to be equal with men before God, where women were treated as those equally made in the image of God. And so the woman very sheepishly says, no one, sir. And, you know, at this point, Jesus could have been the one to condemn her because he was the one without sin. He could have been the one to pick up a rock and righteously condemn her. And now when all the men have left, she could have left too. Maybe she could have snuck away with the dispersing crowd. If the woman had walked away, she could have just continued in the kind of lifestyle she was leading. Whatever her life was, she could have gone right back to it without allowing Jesus to influence her or judge her or do anything and just treat his kindness as kind of her fire escape to get her out of trouble. And Jesus, you know, he would have let her go. To me, it's sort of like the story of the rich young ruler, you know, who turned from Jesus because The cost of discipleship was too high, and Jesus let him go even though it broke his heart. Jesus could have been frustrated or mad and and the young man and said, you know, go to hell as the man walked away. But the text says Jesus loved him and was saddened by his decision. Same thing could have happened here. She could have just slipped away. And if that had happened, we would have seen Jesus's heart broken because he loved her. And he didn't want her to continue going down the wrong path. And mixed in the dirt where he was riding would have been a couple of tears, I think, because Jesus loves that much. When people come to Jesus, it's because they sense his powerful love. They come to Jesus as a response to that love, a love that cannot be equaled in this world. And so Jesus responds to her by giving that second beautiful phrase, then neither do I condemn you, go and leave your life of sin. 
In other words, he gives her an opportunity to respond to forgiveness. Jesus is saying, what you did was wrong. I'm not minimizing the wrong that you did, but I'm not focusing in on the, on the symptoms here either. I want to look at the core issue of your life because you need a change of heart that will lead you to then to a change of lifestyle. If you truly accept the forgiveness of God, it will be impossible for you to look at your life in the same way ever again. If you follow me, you will let me into your heart and I will impact who you are, change your life, change your sexual habits, change who you are. There are only two responses to Jesus's offer of forgiveness. One is what German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. Bonhoeffer, you may know, was a professor and theology professor who opposed Hitler during World War II, worked with a Christian underground group called the White Rose Society. They worked to undermine the Nazis, but he was caught. He was imprisoned by the Nazis. It was hanged just a few days before his concentration camp was liberated by the Allies. He became a martyr for the faith. Bonhoeffer wrote about cheap grace in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. I hope you've read it. It's a real classic. It's not easy to get through, but it's a great book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said that grace without repentance is cheap grace. Grace and forgiveness, it's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card. God's grace is not an excuse to keep on going on in our, our sin. Maybe this woman didn't really repent. Maybe she said that was a close one and then went back to whatever. Thanks, Jesus. Thanks for getting me out of the hot spot. And honestly, if she had done that, how many times have we done that? Thanks, God. And then you go right back to your old self. To want forgiveness without change, that's cheap grace. Cheap grace says God loves you just the way you are, period. That's cheap grace because there's no call to repentance, no call to a change of life, no call to discipleship, no challenge to let God transform you. God loves you just the way you are, hard stop. That's half the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel is God loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to let you stay that way. The gospel is come as you are, but not stay as you are. The call of forgiveness is a call to move on in your life. It's not just an escape from hell. It should involve genuine sorrow for having offended God. I mean, go back and read Psalm 51. Hear those great words that God is seeking those who have a broken and contrite heart. Forgiveness is not just an excuse to keep going on in the same direction. Forgiveness is not saying, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It is a big deal. And so the other response is that forgiveness leads to joyful obedience. Every time I hear this story talked about, most people stop right at go and sin no more. They stop there. Typically, people don't go on to that next phrase, which is when Jesus turns to the crowd and says in verse 12, I am the light of the world, and those who follow me will never walk in darkness. People stop before they get to that phrase. And I don't think we should, because typically it's at those moments in the Gospels when Jesus turns to the crowd or turns to the disciples that he explains what just happened. He turns what just happened into an object lesson for his disciples and for everyone else. And yes, there was an encounter with the woman, but now he's talking to the crowd about the meaning of what they witnessed. What he is saying is, whoever follows me will now never walk in darkness. That's what awaits this forgiven woman 
if she embraces the offer that Jesus is giving to her. Living in forgiveness means joyfully walking in the light. That was the opportunity that Jesus was giving to this woman, to walk in the light of forgiveness. Because forgiveness is like a safety net. It means that it allows us to live with real freedom in life, not with wondering if there's a sword of judgment over my head all the time, like, you know, am I forgiven now? Am I not forgiven? If I did this, is God going to withdraw my forgiveness and, you know, cancel me out? So many people operate with this sense of guilt, this continuous fear that God is going to somehow withdraw his forgiveness. Forgiveness is like a safety net. We don't have to wonder, is God just waiting to hammer me when I get out of line? No, when we fall, we fall into the strong, loving hands of our Savior. He's there to catch us. Because remember what forgiveness cost him. It cost him his own very blood. Now, it is a good thing to live a righteous life, to see reform happen in your morals and in your attitudes, in your actions. But that all comes as a response of joyful obedience to God's forgiveness, not as a means of trying to earn God's approval. That's gospel wabi-sabi. That's the good news of the gospel. You already have God's forgiveness when you place your faith in Christ. We don't know how the woman responded to Jesus. Did she go back to her old life? We don't know. Did forgiveness lead her into joyful obedience? Did she walk in the light? We don't know. What's important is what's your response to the forgiveness of sins? Is it cheap grace? That was a close one. Or is it joyful obedience? Cheap grace where there is forgiveness but no change. Or joyfully walking with Christ. Seeing forgiveness not as an excuse, but as a powerful resource to help overcome the guilt, the self-hatred, the sin of our lives. Whatever it is that's going on in life, forgiveness becomes a powerful force. Jack Welch was uncertain about his eternal destiny. You don't have to be uncertain at all. You can be absolutely sure as you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior that God's promise is for you. Do you know that you need to be forgiven? Do you know that you can't get there on your own? When we stand before God and he asks, why should I let you into my heaven? If your response is, I was pretty good. I wasn't bad as a lot of people. I did my best. You know what? All God hears is I, 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 me, 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 my. Completely self-centered. It's like Frank Sinatra saying, I did it my way. That won't impress God very much. The only answer worth giving When God asks, why should I let you into my heaven? The only answer is to say, Jesus Christ died for me, and I've placed my faith in him and him alone. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Have a great week.